The halacha is that if a person steals something, the perpetrator has to pay back double of what they stole unless they sell or shecht an ox or a sheep, in which case they have to pay either four or five times. question is why Rashi addresses it with two opinions, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai and Rabbi Meir, that look into the psychology of how did the Torah look at a perpetrator and the way Rashi puts it forward, he he defines for us certain nuances in the Pasuk and also gives us an insight into the psychology of what is the Torah more concerned with, the requirement of the perpetrator to make amends or the need of the victim to be compensated for his loss. And the Pasuk that says, should a person steal an ox or a sheep, and sell it, says the Torah, the person would then have to pay five times the value of the ox, and four times the value of the sheep. Rashi says, why? Hey, Rashi, shnei taimim. Rashi brings two reasons. Why it is that the Torah expects a person to pay much more for having sold or slaughtered an ox than if it were a sheep. The Pasuk is clear that it's five times the amount for an ox, and only four times for a sheep. Says Rashi, why the two opinions? First, we have the opinion of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who says the Torah is concerned about the fact that the perpetrator has already suffered some degree of embarrassment. Look how the Torah cares about personal, um, about a person's covet, about a person's honor. An ox which is big and walks by foot. So in order for the Ganav to steal it, he wouldn't have had the embarrassment of schlepping it on his shoulders. So because he hasn't already suffered embarrassment, he must pay the full amount, which is five times the value of the ox. Whereas if to steal a sheep, he'd put it on his shoulders, and that's a little embarrassing walking in the street. So then, Mishalem Dalit, he only has to pay four times, hoyle than his bazaar boy, because he has already suffered some element of embarrassment. That's according to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Um, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir gives a different perspective, and Rashi will, you'll see, is very careful in his choice of how he tells us Rabbi Meir's opinion. Boyurai says Rabbi Meir, look how powerful the consideration of workers. An ox would have been a productive animal, could have worked the fields. And now it has, isn't working for the, for the victim because it's been stolen. So you've got to pay extra five times to compensate for the loss of work. Whereas a sheep doesn't actually do any work, so therefore you only pay four times as much. So there are a number of things about this Rashi that we have to understand, but we'll focus on two to begin with. Why did Rashi have to give two explanations? And secondly, we've already discussed multiple times. Rashi only tells us the names of who is quoting, if knowing who said it will help us understand the concept better. So if that's the case, if it didn't be done, what added value do we get knowing now that it's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai who was concerned about personal dignity and it was Rabbi Meir who was interested in the value of work? And thirdly, if you pay attention to the way that Rashi says it, he says, and Rabbi Meir said, not Rabbi Meir then said. So Omar, the wording comes first. He said, Especially when considered that in most places in Shas, where this particular set of opinions are brought, they're actually portrayed as if they're arguing with each other. 
And Rashi deliberately avoids that. Rashi Rashi specifically chooses the version which is that each one of them stated an opinion and it's not portrayed specifically as an argument. Move and that indicates to us that Rashi does not see that there is an overt debate between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai. It's that they're giving us two perspectives on a particular case, in this case, the halacha of what do you do with a person who had either shechted or sold the animal that he had stolen, that there's two perspectives and they actually complement each other. Now, when you think about it, it doesn't seem to make sense at all what Rashi is illustrating. Because Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai Rabbi Meir Look at how Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and Rabbi Meir portray their two opinions. They do sound very different. And in fact, they actually look like they're totally contradictory. Because Yaseira Mizoi, let's take it a step further. When you consider what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's argument in favor of why the ox has to pay five times compared to Rabbi Meir's argument, it emerges that they're not just two different opinions, but rather, they actually both seem to be saying the exact opposite. So look at the analysis, and you'll see how it looks like they're saying the exact opposite. Let's go from the opinion of Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai, who says we consider human dignity, and therefore we reduce the responsibility for a person who's been embarrassed. So if that's the case, effectively what he's saying is, So his logic is that really by rights what should happen is the correct amount to pay, whether it be an ox or a sheep that you had stolen or that one had stolen, should be five times the amount. But in the case of the sheep, because the person suffered some level of embarrassment, we reduce the original amount that he should pay. So Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai's view is that five is the correct amount to pay, five times, and it gets reduced under certain circumstances. So whereas Rabbi Meir says the exact opposite. Rabbi Meir's perspective is that the core amount that a person should have to pay for having slaughtered or sold an animal is four times as amount, is four times as much. But if it happens to be an ox, then we add an additional payment because we want to penalize the person for having caused the victim loss of work. So, according to Rabbi Yochamed Zakkai, the core amount that you should be paying is five times, and according to Rabbi Meir, four times. So how could Rashi suggest that they don't debate, that they're not arguing, and therefore puts it forward as, and he words it in such a way that it sounds like two parallel statements, both complementing each other. When it's very clear that they are arguing about what is the core penalty for selling or slaughtering an animal. Before you start to calculate, what do we add to penalize for making loss of work, or what do we reduce to mitigate for the fact that a person suffered some level of embarrassment? So, how could Rashi suggest that they're agreeing? Their core v- p- perspectives seem to be at loggerheads. Now, to me, there's also something else that is unusual the order in which Rashi presents these two opinions. Because usually when these two views are quoted, most classical sources 
first quote Rabbi Meir's view, and then Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's view. The exact opposite of how Rashi does it, which leads us to the question, Why then did Rashi first give the view of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai differently to all other classical sources? Now, the Chayroya Efshadatar, it's maybe there's a very simple answer to that. Let's go back to what we just said about the two views that Rabbi Yochem ben Zakkai believes that the primary amount to pay is five times, and Rabbi Meir says four times. According to Rabbi Yochem ben Zakkai, the core penalty is five times the amount, and according to Rabbi Meir, four times. So maybe that's why this is the order they presented it. Look at how the Pasuk presents it. First, the Pasuk discusses paying five times the amount of the value of an ox, and then it talks about four times the amount of the value of a sheep. So, Logic would then say, oh, so that's what the Pasuk is doing. First, the Pasuk gives us a positioning statement, what the core penalty is, which is five times the amount of what you've stolen. And then it sounds like the Pasuk mitigates. The Indian say, when it comes to a sheep, there is now a reduced penalty, the four times of that you pay for a sheep. Now, that would work perfectly, right? Then Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's argument, which is that the core penalty is five times the amount, and then it is reduced if a person is embarrassed, that fits the pshat, the simplest understanding of the posuk. That would explain why Rashi, who always looks for the simplest understanding of the Pasuk, will first bring us a time, he'll first quote Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka because it seems closer to the actual wording of the Pasuk, and then he'll deal with Rabbi, with Rabbi Meir. Okay, sounds like a good answer. But it still leaves us with a question. If Rashi is looking for the opinion that is closest to the simple understanding of the Psukim, that would be Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Don't quote Rabbi Meir at all. He should have only quoted Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Why does Rashi need to quote Rabbi Meir's view if it doesn't seem to be so close to the simplest understanding of the Psukim? So, we've obviously got to dig deeper. The Habir explanation is this. Let's go with our thinking that as far as the Torah is concerned, the correct amount that a person should pay for having slaughtered or sold an animal should be five times the value of the animal. Aye, why is it less for a sheep? Why do you pay less for a sheep? Well, Rabbi Yochum tells us. It's because the perpetrator suffered some embarrassment and therefore gets a reduction on what he has to pay. Well, that's going to raise a very interesting question. Nidresh's Asbara will need to explain. We get it. The perpetrator already suffered some degree of punishment for having been embarrassed. But if you go <coughs> with the thinking that the correct amount owing is five times the value of the animal, why should the victim who deserves to be paid five times the amount get paid less because the perpetrator was embarrassed? 
How does it help the victim if the Ganev was embarrassed during the course of the Ganeva? It doesn't seem fair. So that's the question. We know that the way Rashi does things is he'll first quote the opinion that is closest to the Pshat, but if that opinion has some niggling question with it, he'll bring a supporting opinion, a second view, that will deal with that question. That's exactly what's happening here. That's why Rashi has to quote Rabbi Meir. That, yes, there is a good question why the perpetrator should get the benefit and the victim should apparently lose out part of the money that is owing to him, says Rashi. But there's also logic to what Rabbi Meir says, which fills in the picture. That because an ox would have been productive and could have worked, but now the victim doesn't have the use of that ox. Therefore, he deserves more money in that scenario. If you go according to that explanation, that would, and this is Rabbi Meir's view, that would indicate that actually a victim only really deserves to be paid four times the amount of what was taken from him. But when it was an ox that was taken from him, the actual theft is a greater theft. Not only was the animal taken, but the work value of the animal was taken as well. Therefore, that's why in that scenario, the Torah ramps up the responsibility of how much the perpetrator has to pay because he's actually stolen more. And if that's the case, then exactly as Rashi puts forward, these are not arguments. They're two perspectives on how you arrive at the halacha. So it emerges that actually Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka and Rabbi Meir are not arguing about what is the core penalty for stealing, shechting, or selling an animal. It's just that they're looking at two almost like sidebar issues that come into play when you're dealing with this halacha. And therefore, depending on which scenario it is, will determine which issue is the one that we're actually going to highlight. If we're looking through the lens of how bad was the sin of the Ganav, and then, obviously, once you determine how bad his sin is, that will determine how much responsibility he carries to compensate. From the perspective of what the Ganav deserves to be punished, he deserves to be punished a penalty of five times the value of what he stole. That's what he deserves to pay. But in the case of the sheep, because he embarrasses himself by schlepping the sheep on his shoulders, so we take that into consideration, and as long as we're analyzing what his responsibility is, we'll reduce his responsibility because he already suffered embarrassment. But if we were to look purely from what does a victim deserve, how much loss did the victim suffer? Then we say what the victim deserves is four times what was taken from him. It's just that if what happens to be taken from him is an ox, then his loss is greater. Which also now has to be considered. Because he has lost the income that this ox could generate for him. And that's why in that scenario, the Torah would consider that he deserves to be paid more than an ordinary victim. 
Klaimer, or to simplify it, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai misyaches leaning kafishu mitzad aganav. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai analyzes how the Torah views the responsibility of the perpetrator. Vidu Rabbi Meir mitzad anignav, whereas Rabbi Meir looks primarily at what is owing to the victim, and now it actually makes perfect sense, and it's a beautiful explanation. But it will also help us to understand why Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is quoted first. There's actually a really logical reason now why Rashi will first quote Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai before quoting Rabbi Meir, because that is how you process the obligation to pay for theft. The first consideration is you catch a ganav, you prosecute the ganav, now the question is what does the ganav have to pay in order to compensate his victim? The second phase of that process is the victim receives payment. So therefore it's logical for Rashi to first look at what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, because that's the first part of the conversation. What does the Ganav have to pay? And then from there you can get to the second part of the conversation, which is, and what does the Nignav, the victim, actually receive? Because that's the order of events. First the Ganav pays, then the Nignav receives. And that will also help us to understand what the Pasuk is saying. The concept of suggesting that really the primary, the correct amount that the Ganav should have to pay is five times what he stole. Is the first thing that is mentioned and therefore is actually emphasized. Because what's the Torah talking about? What does the Torah want to establish? The Torah is not talking about how much should the victim receive. Look at the words of the Pasuk. It's he, what he, the Ganav, has to pay. Well, if we're looking from the perspective of what he, the Ganav, has to pay, his key responsibility is to replenish five times what he stole, and we'll let him off some of it if he's embarrassed. Now, we also said, so now it all makes perfect sense. We understand the order of Rashi. We understand how Rashi can say that both opinions are necessary and are not arguing. question is, why do we need to know the names? Because Rashi only does that if it will add insight for us. Whenever Rashi quotes his sources, it's to add insight to what he has already explained. So what additional insight do we get here? Well, obviously, knowing what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and Rabbi Meir respectively think about general issues of halacha will help us a tremendous amount in this case as well. In our case, What's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's perspective? Let's look at what the Ganav should be paying and let's be harsh on him. That he should really be paying five times the amount unless there's mitigating circumstances. Whereas Rabbi Meir Meir is looking from the perspective of the victim and saying, listen, the victim only needs four times as much in order to be satisfied for what he had lost. This actually fits neatly with their respective views in a completely different area of halacha. That area is quoted in the Gemara Bavakama, 
And as we'll see also in the Medrash, from a sect of Avakame Bechain Betanchume, Muvois, Amemris, and Nalder, Yechem and Zakai, Rabbi Meir. These two perspectives of Rabbi Yechem and Zakai and Rabbi Meir are quoted in the Gemara and in the Medrash in context, Behemshech, Lemeim Reisem, Berengel, Tamachilik, Benganov, Legazlan. Where they also, and so it's in context of how they analyze why it is that a Gazlan, somebody who steals in broad daylight, pays less compensation to his victim than a Ganov who st- stole under the cover of darkness. The gun of the surreptitious thief has to pay double of what he stole or four, five times the amount if he shechted or sold an animal. Whereas a gazan, a broad daylight gun of a thief, only or robber, only pays the principal amount that he stole. So each of them gives a particular parable to illustrate what's going on over here. Says the Gemara, Shalut Hamidav Zareich Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. The Gemara says that the students asked Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, "Mipnei Ma Echmira Torah Beganav Yosemiv Gazlan." How come it is that the Torah is stricter on the thief than it is on the robber, the person who acts in the under cover of darkness? Oh, Malohem, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, "Well, look what happened over here." Look at what happened over here. The Ganov makes a statement that he cares more about people than about God, because God can see him as long as people don't see him, he's okay. Whereas the Gazlan is an equal offender. He doesn't care that Hashem sees or that people see. So therefore the Ganov Kvayochol Osa Einshel Matakila Eno Royva Ozen Shamatakilene Shamas. Shinemo maybe al Zagimul Psukim. So he basically says that Rabbi Yechabedah ben Zakkai says that the Ganav makes as if Hashem doesn't see and doesn't hear. As long as people can't see and hear, we're good. And he brings three psukim to prove this, and we'll look at those three psukim a little bit later on in the Sicha, and how they describe three degrees of a person's spiritual unraveling. So Rabbi Yechabedah ben Zakkai says the issue of the Ganav is that he's disrespectful to Hashem, and he says, I care more what people think. Amr Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir gives a different perspective. Mashal Mashal Mishum Rabbi Gamliel Lemad of Adomer. There is a parable attributed to Rabbi Gamliel which compares it as follows: The Beis Bnei Adam Shehoyu Beir. There were two individuals who lived in the same city. Vasu Mishta. Each one of them made a big banquet. Echad Zimenes Bnei Ha'ir Veloy Zimenes Bnei Amerech. One invited the population of the city, but didn't invite the king. Vechad Loy Zimenes Bnei Ha'ir Veloy Zimenes Bnei Amerech, and the other didn't invite anybody. So again, who's the Ganav? He invites everybody except the king. Who's the cousin? He doesn't invite anybody. He doesn't care about anybody. Says Rabbi Meir, So which one should be punished more severely? Obviously, it must be the person who invited the citizens of the city and ignored the king. It's a real patch upon him to the king. Now, effectively, it sounds like they're both saying similar things, but obviously in very different ways. So we have to look at those details of what is the difference between the marshal Rabbi Yechim ben Zakkai uses and the marshal that Rabbi Meir uses. There are many, many things that have to be understood over here. And in order to understand them, let's explain a little bit, and that will obviously uh, give us insight. It seems very clear that the difference between Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's explanation and Rabbi Meir's marshal is this. According to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the big issue of the Ganav is the lack of fear of heaven. That he cares less about fear of heaven than he cares about fear of other people. 
So therefore, how does the person act? He makes out as if Hashem doesn't see. During the cover of night, people don't see. God doesn't see either. So Rabbi Zakai is saying that the Ganav has a perspective. It's as if you could hide from Hashem. Whereas, if you look from Rabbi Meir's perspective, he focuses on the fact that if the Ganav does things in a secretive way, it shows that he has a certain respect for his victim more than he has respect for God. He doesn't want to offend his victim by, by kind of being in his face. Like in the parable that Rabbi Mary gives, look at the marshal. The marshal is what's the chutzpah of this guy? He invited, he showed honor to the people of his town and ignored the honor of the king. Likewise, the Ganev shows he shows respect to his victim. He doesn't want to disturb him, but he doesn't show respect to Hashem because he goes on in spite of the fact that Hashem sees him. Now, what's interesting here, just as in our case about the Tvicha or Mechir, about shechting and selling an animal, is actually Rabbi Yechonim and Zakai and Rabbi Meir are not arguing. Again, this exact same language usage that Rashi uses, where you put the word Omer before the person's name to indicate that it is just a different opinion, not a, a an arguing opinion. So what's happening here? What's happening is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and Rabbi Meir are each looking at different elements of the same issue. This should sound very familiar. Rabbi Yochanan Zakai is looking from the perspective of the perpetrator, as he does in the story of shechting or selling an animal. He looks primarily from the perspective of the perpetrator and how much should he be paying. Likewise, yeah, he looks from the perspective of the perpetrator. And what does he effectively say? That this is an individual who... Give, does not equate the honor owing to his victim as he does to Hashem. The fact that he doesn't show, that he shows more respect to his victim. Where is Rabbi Yochim and Zaka going with this? He wants to highlight the fact that the Ganav rejects the fact that Hashem is watching. He makes it like Hashem's eye does not see. So what's his focus? The Ganav's rejection of Hashem's providence. He looks also from the perspective of the victim. He doesn't just say that it's a rejection of Hashem's authority. He says the Ganav wants to give respect to his victim. Respect that he doesn't show Hashem. That fits beautifully with our Rashi over here. That Rabbi Yochum and Zakai always looks from the perspective of the perpetrator and his responsibility or his sin. And Rabbi Meir always looks from the impact on the victim. How badly was the victim effective either by what was taken from him or in this case by whether he was shown some level of respect. Now that we know Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and Rabbi Meir's respective opinions on how come the Torah punishes the thief more than the robber, 
That mevoer will help to explain not just the fact, as we've already highlighted, that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai always looks from the perpetrator's perspective and how much responsibility the perpetrator has, whereas Rabbi Meir looks from the victim's perspective and how much consideration was there for the victim. It's going to come back to our conversation about do we look at how much the ganav should pay for having shechted or sold the animal on versus how much does the victim deserve for having had that happen to his animal. So the fear of Yechemen Zakai again, what's Rabbi Yechemen Zakai's whole shita we've now learned? The big issue with the Ganav is that he rejects Hashem's authority and providence. That he says like Hashem doesn't see. So that helps us to understand that as far as Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is concerned, the biggest consideration of he has, how bad was the perpetrator's sin? And so therefore, if we're looking at how bad his sin was, we're looking for maximum penalty. Unless, of course, he's already been embarrassed. Whereas Rabbi Meir says, we're going to determine how badly the perpetrator behaved based on how badly the victim was hurt. That lends itself to giving some leniency to the Ganev. That if there is a scenario where the Ganev was somewhat more considerate of his victim, well, then we'll reduce how much he has to pay. So the fee bureau zen nimsa that now helps us to understand. So what's Rashi doing by telling us who said which opinion? He's giving us deeper insight into the entire conversation. Why Rabbi Yechemen Zakkai looked specifically from the perspective of the Ganav? Why? Because his whole focus is how badly did this person sin? Which is why the primary responsibility is to pay five times as much. Whereas Rabbi Meir is looking primarily from how much did the victim lose, because from his perspective, we always consider was the Ganav considerate of his victim. Which is why really the amount that needs to be paid is only four times as much, unless he took more from him by taking an animal which could have done productive work. But the truth is, it's even more beautiful when you explain. That Rashi doesn't only quote the two opinions that will have added information about how they see the case, but actually by telling us their names, Rashi is giving us insight into the core of their respective opinions. The concept that Rabbi Yochemen Zakai said, that the minute the perpetrator is embarrassed, we already reduce some of his liability. And the fact that Rabbi Meir says the minute there is greater loss to the victim, there's obviously more that has to be paid in compensation that also is because of how Rabbi Yerachim ben Zakkai and Rabbi Meir look at things in the other context that we've already discussed. 
So what exactly are we saying? Before we can explain exactly what we're saying, we first have to understand First we'll start with Rabbi Yochim ben then we'll look at Rabbi Meir. Let's first raise four questions about Rabbi Yochim ben Zakkai's position, which is, look at the Ganav. The Ganav owes the most amount of money because he rejects Hashem's authority and providence, unless, of course, he's already been embarrassed, in which case we reduce his liability. So let's ask four questions. Number one, if that's the whole shita, if that's what what Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai looks at, the rejection of God, why wait until he shechted or sold the animal? Why is there only the distinction between an ox and a sheep after the Ganav has sold or shechted it? Surely, if Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai's concern is that a guy carrying sheep on, a sheep on his shoulders is embarrassing, well, then that happens the moment he steals the animal. If what he steals is an ox, he's not embarrassed at the time of stealing. And if he's stealing a sheep, then at the time of stealing, he is already embarrassed. So then surely, when a normal Ganev has to pay double, surely that should be reduced in the case of the guy who's carrying the sheep on his shoulders because he was already embarrassed. Whereas the Torah doesn't say that. The Torah says, carte blanche, across the board, any time a person steals, they have to pay double. Why no reduction for the person who is already embarrassed, according to his logic? Number two, it's a Ganev. Where's the embarrassment? Isn't the whole point of embarrassment that somebody sees you being embarrassed? The guy is stealing under the cloak of darkness. How's he embarrassed by having the sheep on his shoulders? Nobody's going to see it. So where's the embarrassment? Number three, why does Rashi have to tell us that Rabbi Yochanan's whole view is that the Torah cares about human dignity? Just cut to the chase. Why does Rashi give the introduction to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai that he holds that the Torah cares about human dignity? He could have just gotten straight to the point. An ox walks so there's no embarrassment, whereas a sheep has to go on your shoulders and that is embarrassing. And lastly, we have to ask slight difference over here in language between the way Rashi says it and his, or at least what potentially his source of Medrash Tanchoma. Let's say for whatever reason it was necessary for Rashi to premise Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's statement by saying the Torah cares about human dignity. Surely the way to say it, especially Rashi, who's always trying to match with the simplest understanding of the Pasuk, he should have used He should have used the way the Major Tanchuma says it, which is that Hashem even cares about the dignity of a thief. That's the context we're talking about a Ganav over here. Whereas what Rashi says is that Hashem cares about human dignity. Who says that's talking about a criminal? You could say it's talking about an ordinary or even a simple, even a lowly human being. A Briois, somebody whose only credit is that Hashem created them. But not necessarily a Ganav.
That explains to us why the consideration of his embarrassment only emerges in a case where he had shechted or sold the animal and not a regular case of Gneva. Because, because if I'm dealing with an ordinary case of theft, it really makes no difference what the object was that was stolen. We only have one question at Iraq, how much value was taken and therefore pay it back and double. The, 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 the Basin doesn't even have to ask what the item was. All the Basin needs to know is how much value was stolen. That's how much you have to repay, doubled. As Rashi himself is going to say, Everything falls under the category of paying double for theft, whether it is living or not. But yet you see that when the Torah enters into the conversation about shechting or selling an animal, as Rashi will tell us, where Rashi says this is a unique halacha that can only apply to two classes of animals. Only oxen and only sheep. Well, if that's the case, we have to know what we're dealing with. When the guy is now brought in front of the base and accused of having sold or shechted an animal, we have to know what animal it was. And when it emerges that it was a sheep, well, then we know that it was an embarrassing thing because we have a picture in our minds of him carrying the sheep on his shoulders. But that's going to raise another question. If his embarrassment is actually not the fact that we saw him in this uh, in this compromised position, and it's only because post facto we now become aware of how he schlepped the animal when he's standing in front of the courts, is it then fair to say that reduces? His obligation? Is it fair, therefore, to reduce how much he has to pay because of a little bit of embarrassment that people in their imaginations are picturing the guy having carried the sheep on his shoulders, but nobody actually saw it at the time? Is that fair? Says Rashi, yes. That's why Rashi had to give the premise to Rabbi Yochum and Zakai's um, the preface to his to his statement, that there's an axiom, God cares about human dignity. Because according to the strict letter of law, it probably does not make sense to make such a massive reduction in the payment that the perpetrator has to make because of such a small embarrassment that he suffered. That's according to the strict letter, but the Ebishter has the softness, this compassion for human dignity. 
because they is so compassionate towards people, they is willing to reduce massively the amount that the person owes, even if it's just for a little bit of embarrassment. Fascinating insight into how we're supposed to see criminals. And therefore, Rashi couldn't quote the version of the Tanchuma to align with the Pshat that it's specifically a Ganav that Hashem is so compassionate towards. That's why Rashi changed the language to say Hashem cares about people. Because let's look at the context. At which point is this embarrassment happening when the guy is standing trial? Long after having stolen. Because we know, look, he already shechted it and he sold it. And then there was a time until he was caught. And then then there was a time until he got a court date. Until they found witnesses. Not only is he in... His net outcome is not going to be gain from having stolen. He's actually going to, now he realizes suddenly, Oy vey, I'm going to be out of pocket for having stolen. He's going to have to pay four times as much. These are all the considerations. And he's had time to think about it. Says the Rebbe, There's no question about it that at this stage of the process, he completely has remorse for having stolen. He's no longer truly a criminal. And therefore, you cannot necessarily say that this is proof that Hashem cares about a Ganev. He's not such a Ganev at this point in time. David has compassion to humans, and he's a human at this point. Maybe a lowly, Brios, a lowly human, but he's no longer the Ganev, the sinister individual. He's already had some introspection. But a smart child is going to ask, Is it really fair to say that the consideration about the dignity of a person, not the best of people at this point, is so valuable? That because of this tiny little bit of embarrassment, we're going to reduce the amount that he should by law have to pay? Rashi answers that by saying, look who said it. Do you know who he was? Do you know his attitude to people? If you understand the attitude that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had to people, generally you'll see that this is exactly his shit, this is the way he, he, he looks at life. Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai was the person nobody ever got to greet him before he had already greeted them, even if it was a non-Jewish person in the marketplace. So what does that illustrate? Look how much he cherished the dignity of the next person to the extent that it never once happened that somebody got to greet him before he had already greeted them. Not just... Jewish people, even non-Jewish people, even in the marketplace. So if Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai loved the dignity of the Goy he meets in the marketplace, how much more so in this case? We're dealing with a case where the Ganev already feels remorse. Vyasa Tshuva is possibly even done Tshuva. Because that's the nature of people. Once they're caught, they have remorse. Call it a flaw of the human being, but it's the fact. They feel that they have to do tshuva once they're caught. 
even a tiny amount of embarrassment for such a person already has value to reduce how badly we're going to punish him for having stolen. Fascinating perspective of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Now, why do we have to know that Rabbi Meir was the one who looked from the perspective of the victim and said, Bito Melocha is such a big deal? Why then does Rashi have to quote Rabbi Meir's name? When he argues that the ox, because there's a loss of revenue, because an ox is a, 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 it's a beast of, of work. So let's also look at how Rashi prefaces Rabbi Meir's opinion. Gam, what does he say? Om Rabbi Meir, Meir says, Look at this. How powerful is the concept of work? You could ask, why do I need that introduction? Like we asked about Rabbi Meir and Zakai, where at first it didn't seem necessary to have this introduction. Why the introduction over here? Also, look at this difference in language. When the Gemara talks about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's opinion, it also says, come see how great is human dignity. Rashi doesn't quote it with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, only Rabbi Meir. Why does Rashi only use that incredible expression? Wow, wow, look at this. Only with regards to Rabbi Meir. And then you've got to ask yourself the question, what's the big surprise that work is a valuable thing? Gimel ve'iker. Ma'hu goydel ha'chidosh bozeh. What is the great surprise? To the point that Rabbi Meir makes it as if it's like he's excited to tell us this incredible piece of information. Come see how powerful is the, the concept of work. It's logical. You cause somebody to lose income, to lose revenue because they can't work, pay them for it. The truth is, we already know this principle. We already learned earlier in this parasha that if there's a person who is injured under certain circumstances, the only thing you have to pay for is loss of revenue. Rashi. Rashi explains what's if the person is injured or ill and therefore cannot work you have to repay them for their loss of income and Rashi doesn't introduce that by saying wow look how amazing work is so why is it relevant here the explanation is if I'm going with a simple understanding of the Pasuk you would have assumed that when we work out the principal amount owing for having stolen an ox, we would have already worked in the fact that the ox is a work animal and therefore there's greater loss than if it was a sheep that was stolen. In exactly the same way as the Torah says, if a person causes a human not to be able to work, it's automatically built into the penalties that you pay for loss of revenue. Maybe it should be the same thing for any implement that was stolen that the person cannot work with. There's no reason to actually tell us this. It's already well known. You cause a person in whichever way it is that you cause them loss of revenue, you have to compensate for it. 
ועדין כן לא רק בשיר, שבו הרווח מגיע ממלוכה, אלא גם בסצר, הגענו בשם עבור מניע שהרווח מנצר מהגודל לא וכדומה. In fact, it's not even unique to the turnox, still a, a sheep, you have to also pay for the fact that there was another kind of loss of revenue, namely, could have sold the wool. אלא שהחידש כאן הוא, what Rabbi Meir wants to tell us over here, and what's so innovative about Rabbi Meir's opinion is, שמאחה שנחסה מבעל אשר עניין המלוכה. Here we're not talking about revenue. Loss of revenue, we're already familiar with that and that the, the perpetrator has to pay for it. Here we're talking about the concept of work. Not only the income generated by work, just the concept that a person could work with their ox, and now the ox has been taken, is already something you could penalize. For which the Ganev has to pay the value of the entire ox another time. That's surprising. Logic says you, you take away revenue, pay for the revenue. But now we're saying you take away the capacity to work uncoupled from revenue. Just the fact that you could work, that that's already got a, a penalty associated with it. That's surprising. That's why Rashi has to introduce this by saying, Rabbi Meir tells us, wow, look at what the Torah is telling us, how valuable work is. Because here the Torah is telling us a fascinating insight, that the Ganav will have to pay the full value of the ox one extra time, even though he has already compensated the victim fully. He's even compensated him for lack of revenue. And what does he have to pay an extra time? Wow, look how much that tells us about how we value work. What's being discussed and analyzed over here in the Torah is the value of work. The concept of doing work is so valuable to the extent that if the owner of this ox cannot work now with his ox, the Ganav has to pay 100% of the value of this ox an additional time. This is incredible. That's how much Torah values work, even work that is not necessarily associated with income. The bright student will ask, Let's be honest. How much time in a year does the ox actually work? How much of the owner's time does it take? And across the lifespan of an ox, how much of its time is it actually working? Plowing, maybe twice a year. And it's only a few hours a day. You're making work as if it's such a big deal. On the real grand scale, it's actually quite insignificant, specifically in the context of an ox. Shailani Sephis. Let's take it one step further. We know that the perpetrator has to pay five times the value of the ox if he killed the ox. In fact, the Torah even mentions it first before it talks about the possibility that he sold it. Now let's get into the head of the gun. Why did he shech this animal? 
must be because this ox cannot pull a plow or it's not fit for work. Otherwise, there's much more value in keeping the ox alive. Why is he shechting it? If it wasn't a fit and healthy ox, he would have kept it for himself or sold it to somebody who could use it, get much more money out of it. So there's not a whole lot of loss of work over here with a weak animal. That's why Rashi quotes his source. Who said this, Rabbi Meir? Because Rabbi Meir has a view that carries right through all areas of halacha. That we take into consideration outlier scenarios. So therefore we do even take into consideration that small amount of oxen who don't deserve necessarily to work. Because if they could do a little bit of work, the loss of work is already a consideration. It's a fascinating perspective. Now, all of this is going to teach us a beautiful lesson in our own avoida from a spiritual perspective. When we go back to the two perspectives of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka and Rabbi Meir about why we expect the Ganav to pay more than the Gazlan, there's a fascinating and beautiful spiritual insight too. When Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai made the statement that the problem with the Ganav is he makes it as if Hashem doesn't see what's going on down here below, as we mentioned at the time, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai quotes three different psukim to prove this point. One pasuk is, pasuk from Yeshaya that says, look at these people who kind of hide their things deeply as if to say Hashem is not going to see them, that they, they're acting in the dark. That they say that Hashem won't see or understand what we're doing. That Hashem has abandoned the earth and doesn't see what's going on in our world. So, Vakasha, you've got to ask yourself the question, why do we need all these psukim? Out of my chrikhalavi psukim karaya, why does he have to bring psukim at all to prove the point? Surely it's logical. Surely anybody can understand how bad it is for a person to imagine that Hashem doesn't see what they're doing. And if you do need to bring psukim, base of a frat gimel psukim, you have to bring three different psukim to make your point. And gimel shini aseder. Why does he bring it in a strange order where Tehillim, which actually appears later in Nach, is quoted before Yecheskel? The answer is a spiritual answer. We're dealing over here with a person who does believe that there is a supernal eye that sees things. It's just that this person says, maybe David doesn't see what's happening in my little world. Now you've got to ask yourself a question. How could a person who fundamentally believes in Hashem arrive at such a strange perspective? To believe that Hashem, so to speak, doesn't see what's happening down here in our world. Where do you get that from? You believe that there's a God. You believe that Hashem sees what's going on. And you don't believe that He sees what's happening in your space? That's why Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai quotes three psukim. To show us the psychological unraveling and spiritual unraveling of a Ganav. who his first Pasuk is, These are people who, so to speak, operate in the darkness as if they could hide from Hashem. Claim a meaning to say, 
person knows that Hashem sees. But he has a strange perspective. He tells himself, Weird perspective. He says, David created light. Why did he create light? To see. Therefore, he believes that Abish created a system where if Hashem decided it's light, then it's a time that Hashem sees everything just like you and I do. If Hashem decided it's dark, then Hashem decided that even he won't see things just like you and I cannot. Now, you got to ask yourself, are you crazy? How do you come up with such a warped perspective that you believe that physical light is going to make a difference to Hashem's seeing? So there was a step before that. It didn't just happen overnight. There was a, a, an, an evolution. There was a, a prior step. The Pasuk that says, It's a perspective that says, Ebershut doesn't spend his time or waste his time looking at the nuances of our life. Ebershut is so supreme. He doesn't come down into our space and doesn't get involved in physical things. Because in this person's perspective, to see the physical, you have to look through physical eyes. So therefore this person has this holy perspective. God forbid to suggest that Hashem is trapped in our reality and seeing our world. Now how does a person get to that headspace in the first place? Surely it's logical as the Pasuk itself says. The one who created ears should not be able to hear. The one who created physical eyes should not be able to see the physical. What are you crazy? It doesn't make any sense. If they could create physical eyes, obviously he doesn't lack physical sight. Therefore, Rabbi Yochum brings the third pasuk, which is the perspective that they abandoned the world. Who is sovereign? This is a person who believes. It's such a lowly world. It's too lowly for the Ebesha to be found in the environment of this world. The Ebesha is completely exalted beyond the perspective of all the philosophies and, and theologies of the Goyim. So therefore it makes sense to him that the Ebesha moved on. He's beyond all this world. He left it to his underlings, so to speak. That's what Rabbi Meir also alludes to in his Moshal. The Ganav is the guy who not only doesn't he not invite the king, doesn't invite B'nai HaMelech, the children of the king, meaning, that's because in his world he thinks you only interact with the underlings. Not with the king himself. As the Rambam very clearly says, this was the beginning of all Avoidazara. The thinking which says that Debesha doesn't get his hands dirty with our world, everything is outsourced. So now we effectively have the three major steps of psychological sabotage that the Yetzirah uses to get us to go against what the Ebeshter wants. 
the first argument the Eitzara makes is Shemeshachno Yashaozav Hashem Asoritz. That Debesh is beyond our world. Debesh is exalted. Even Kavoy, the lowest dimension and glimmer of godliness is beyond the heavens. Debesh doesn't care about your little nonsense. So you could do whatever you want. What do you think Debesh cares? You think Debesh is ain't soif. He's going to be worried if you wait six hours after me. Or if you eat something that has this heksher or that heksher. Or if you bring Shabbos a minute later. Why does he care? It's beyond, he's beyond all of that. But the Yetzirah is not satisfied just getting us to that point. Because that's not a real rejection of Hashem. On the contrary, that's actually speaking about Hashem's greatness. You're saying that David is great, just not present. So therefore, once the Yetzirah has succeeded in speaking that into our heads, then the Yitzhara tries something else. Then not only is Abish not here, present in our space, but he doesn't even see what's going on in our space. You could even say that Abish is part of our world because he created a world. But he doesn't watch what's going on in our world because the stuff of our world is irrelevant to him. But even that doesn't satisfy the Yetzirah because it's not an outright rejection of Hashem. Because he's saying the is great, so great that our world is too small. This is a person who argues You're arguing that the doesn't come down to see what's happening in our world because he's so great. Not good enough for the Yetzirah. So therefore, Moshev away from Meshachnu Yisrael Mizoi. So the Yitzhar pressures another perspective. Shebemes Hakadosh Baruch Hu Roya Gaminyan Yugashmim. The truth is, Abish is not so elevated. Abish just sees what's going on in our world. But it depends when. Difference between light and dark. Anything that is associated with holiness, Abish just sees and notices because he cares about those things. But the Yetzirah says, Do you honestly think the Abish is going to look at your disgusting stuff? He's not going to look there. He's not going to look at things that are the world of darkness. Once the Yetzirah gets inside a person's head and makes as if the Abish would not pay attention to the dirty laundry because it's beneath him and because it's disgusting, it's not stuff that he cares about, that evolves in the person's mind that the God of actually thinks there's a difference between physical light and dark. To the point that he convinces himself that if I do a sin where nobody else could see, they can't see either. Rabbi Mary gives us one additional perspective by using a, specifically a marshal of a feast. What does Rabbi Meir tell us? Rabbi Meir is actually talking about once the Ganav has been caught and is now in front of the Bezdin. We say, as we mentioned earlier, at this point he's already feeling remorse. Remorse is a powerful thing. It means that the person is subduing the negative energy within themselves. 
שממנו נעשים מטעם עם איש דקפה יוכל לעבור הקדוש ברוך הוא כדיבר רבינו הזוקן בתניא. והאלטרבה tells us that some of the most incredible dishes are dishes that are not edible until you spice and, and cure them in a particular way and likewise the greatest spiritual delight that you could give to Hashem is something that was originally bad and now you cure it, you work through tshuva, you have remorse, you have iskafia and that transforms it. In fact, it's this specific kind of delight for Hashem that has special value, as it says, that David waits for the Russia, so to speak. That he waits for the Russia to do tshuva. So that what was once bad now becomes light and goodness on high. And therefore, that gives tremendous nachas to Hashem. So this banquet that we make for Hashem through the process of remorse and therefore iskafia for having done something wrong, that prepares us that prepares us for the ultimate feast of all, the feast of the Leviathan that will be served when Mashiach comes over Korav Mamish that should happen absolutely immediately.